Hello and welcome to the Ra podcast at Manchester Metropolitan University. My name is Martin Kratz. June series of episodes will explore the intersections of science and art. In our third interview, I will speak to Anthony Hall about his experiences of how drawing in particular can help in thinking through and communicating scientific ideas. What's great about arts is it's a disciplined way of looking and a focused way of looking. And I think that has benefits for the sciences as well, if that's also a process of looking. You can join the conversation on Twitter by hashtagging Ra underscore podcast. So let's get into our third episode in our science and art series. Hello, I'm here today with the artist Anthony Hall. So I was going to start by just describing, well, a series of photos I've seen on Anthony's website, which were titled, these were projection with fluids. And you can look at them if you go to anthonyhall.net. So it's a series of tubes and vials and glass containers containing a green fluid. The really striking thing is it's all about fluids, but it's kind of how solidly they come across. Yeah, thanks for that. That was really interesting to listen to you describe it verbally. That sort of uh, evolving body of work, which was based on 18th century science, and um, specifically that came from a book, Experiments with Soap Bubbles, which was this lovely this lovely old book which went with a lecture by... Um, Charles Vernon Boyce, um, and he demonstrated all of his experiments through a slide projector where the experiments were actually performed in this field of focus so they could be projected for the audience. And for that one, I had to maintain it. So there's a really, yeah, this continual maintenance which has to occur where you're continually refilling the funnels and cleaning the device as it's projecting. That's interesting, that maintenance. You do have to keep doing it this is probably slightly sort of simplistic way of looking about a kind of when a painting is done in some ways it's done it really reflects what I do in the studio and sometimes I think when you make a finished piece of work for me a lot of the some of the work is somehow missing it in finishing it so I find it more exciting to present the work as that exciting moment of discovery you know as that moment of something happening that moment you described there mm. of the kind of you're doing this thing and you think actually what I want to capture is this the kind of the moment of it's happening not necessarily the kind of product of of it if that makes sense if I'm thinking about science that kind of makes me think of that moment of discovery that you hear about my background is in writing and criticism of poetry where you also have that moment of if in the writing where suddenly like oh this is the happening of it but I think is is there a link then to is that where the science element also comes into it? There's technical equipment involved. There are scientific processes involved, a lot of scientific language involved. But then there's also the kind of significance of this, um, yeah, seeing things in happening and the discovery. So I think what's in quite important to me is this element of not knowing and not being an expert. And in that amateur approach is, yeah, something that I kind of hold hold dear in a way. I embrace that not knowingness, I guess, and I almost don't want to get to the point where I understand it too much because then some of the mystery is somehow gone. And uh, But it, yeah, it's, it's about that moment of excitement, which I guess that drives my practice and it keeps the work alive slightly. So where are you now with your work? I'm still thinking about that approach as an amateur scientist and I'm still thinking about experience. And for this research, I'm looking at perceptual illusions, not optical illusions, but illusions which combine sense 
of touch, you know, maybe sonic illusions, tactile illusions, and illusions of proprioception, so the sense of where our body is in space. And the main experiment that I've developed is called the clay hand illusion, which is based on an illusion known as the rubber hand illusion, which you might have heard of, it's quite famous. So it's where you, you stare at a rubber hand, and while your real hand is hidden, and someone strokes both hands in synchronisation, and you start to believe that the rubber hand is your own hand. And that's because you can see the touch occurring at the point where you can feel it. So I had this idea, well, you know, why don't we make, get clay and just get people to make them? Well, firstly, when people make a clay hand, they're all completely different. Some people might be good at sculpting a hand to make a realistic one, and other people or children might make a hand which is not necessarily realistic. So I repeated the experiment with these various forms of clay hand, and I found people could embody these really unusual shapes, really un unhand-like hands, which are also made of clay. So then during the experiment, I asked them to make new hands or modified hands, maybe with three fingers or extended fingers. What I've been doing now is um, asking them to make things which are unhand-like in order to try and embody them to see if that, how far that they can stretch their perceptual imagination. So I started exploring this idea of if imagination plays a role in embodiment, um, which is a question I'm still not quite sure how to answer but I think certainly like empathy you use imagination and I'm wondering if in a similar way you have this empathy for these inanimate objects somehow and I'm wondering if the process of having made them affects the extent to which you can embody them. I need to know now what was the most unhand-like hand? I yeah guess? so the most extreme case is a, a simply a round blob so the artist I worked with was able to create a round blob and she felt attachment to this to the extent she felt like it was actually her hand was the blob. So I have to, re I have to sort of map her hand over this unfeasible object. Um, the other interesting thing is like people can embody a clay hand quite easily but then you can remove a digit and they will still embody the disembodied digit. And then you can <laughs> remove the rest of the hand, so they're just embodying the disembodied digit or or blob. It's so, like like yeah. a phantom, phantom limb. Yeah, yeah. And what I've found is that not everyone's able to experience the illusion. I'm not sure whether it's how it's affected to creativity as yet, but if you are able to experience embodiment over a clay hand, some people can then go further and embody empty space. That's fascinating. I want to come back to something you said some time ago, which is about this notion of the amateur scientist and, and, and sort of and vice versa. Actually, in some ways, the amateur artist, the scientist who is an amateur artist or is an artist. Well, where that, how that relationship between science and art, where it begins for you? So I think they go hand in hand. And, and for me, my, my practice is... I don't think I ever really stopped to think about whether it was art or science. It was I spent most of my time really being inspired by science, even though I'm, I'm not a scientist. So I think when I was younger, I, I'd always wanted to be a scientist um, from a really young age. And I had a, my room set up like a laboratory and a sign on the door saying lab. <laughs> so that actually, I, I really struggled at school. Now I'm able to explore the sciences in a really, this really fun, creative way. You know, I managed to come to the studying science through a different route altogether, I guess. My my studio really is more of a laboratory. It's more about the equipment and the space to perform experiments. It isn't full of artworks. I think what it is for me, I, 
I love drawing. And um, I always, when I'm doing anything about science, I'll use drawing as an activity at some point. Because I think in what's great about arts is it's a disciplined way of looking and a focused way of looking. And I think that has benefits for the sciences as well. If you bring that to the sciences, that's also a process of looking. And drawing actually sits kind of really sort of perfectly between the two disciplines because mm. scientists, you know, there's a whole history of scientific drawings, of observational drawings, field notes, things like that. There's a connection um, between them, isn't there? Yeah, I, I think so. Which is the what we described as this way of looking and this trained way of looking. Mm. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, one of my experiments is on the something called the strange face illusion, and I ask people to gaze at their own face in near darkness, <laughs> and they and they begin to see hallucinatory effects, uh, which are only describable through words. Okay. So I've tried to make a visual representation of that. I've been desperately trying to draw what I could see and make diagrams of exactly what was happening. For me, drawing can be a perceptual tool. It's how I see it. It's it doesn't necessarily document the reality of the thing or the phenomenon. It it documents your understanding of it and it helps you qualify what it was important about that thing, what is important about that thing in relation to your perception of it, I guess. And I think in education, teacher might not be trained in drawing and therefore feel uncomfortable about teaching drawing because they believe that drawing's about skill and about teaching people how to make a good drawing which is a misperception really because although that is one element of it the skill of it uh, making a drawing can communicate how you understand something and what for so for children it can communicate their gaps in understanding as well which i think is an important use for drawing so it's the drawing shows the gaps in their knowledge but i think also sort of thinking of my own kids that when they do it sometimes it also shows me things that they knew which I didn't know they knew yeah. you know different kind of types yeah. of knowledge yeah, that for I think. Sure. Um, and sometimes also then you go oh I didn't know that because of the way they look at it yeah so I ask people to draw their hand without looking so I get a various collect collections of drawings of people's hands how, you know, how do they how big is that hand how distorted is it is people's response to it quite emotional I know that sounds strange, but I think like the hands are, I think sometimes something you might take for granted. Yeah. If you're someone who works with your hands, that's perhaps you'll have a different relationship to them to someone who doesn't. There's some really interesting implications in terms of, I guess maybe it comes back to the empathy. But so when we make distortions in the hand and modifications to it, people often get like a really powerful response. Uh, I've had several people say their the hairs are standing up on the back of their neck, then heart rate increases. And also previous experiments have shown people get um, a galvanic skin response spike as well. So there's definitely a strong emotional response to or specifically when, when you push it to its limits and do something that's surprising and un unusual. Yeah. Yeah, I bet. I, I, can, I, can, um, I can really imagine yeah. that. And with the strange face illusion, that, that is very disturbing for some people to the point one person just had to leave the room during the experiment. And um, yeah, people get really freaked out by that. Because you're taking these things which are so familiar to us, mm. but you're also making them unfamiliar. But in the case of the face one, it doesn't seem like you're doing anything particularly radical. You're looking at your face in a mirror which is what most people do probably on a daily basis. Mm. And there's just a couple of things, which is the duration yeah. and then maybe the lighting yeah. that changed that. Yeah, it's, I guess, you're making people slightly aware of their perceptual vulnerabilities yeah. or something like that. I can, I can definitely imagine it would be emotional. Yeah. 
Don't forget to follow us on Twitter for future podcast updates. You can find us at MMU underscore Ra. For more information on all the research and events we discussed in this episode, please go to the Ra website for full links. In our next and final episode in this series, I'll be speaking to artist Dave Griffiths about the role of storytelling in disciplines across both art and science. Tune back in soon for more episodes. This episode was produced and edited by Lucy Simpson, presented by me, Martin Kratz, and mixed by Julian Holloway.